0: Namo dasa pakawato, arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo dasa pakawato, arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo dasa pakawato, arahato samma sambuddhasa. Budhang tamang namasami. The next uh, talk in this collection, Uh, the uh, book is Volume 3 of the uh, Ajahn Sumedho Anthology, called Direct Realization, and this uh, collection of teachings is from the book The Way It Is, and these are all Dhamma talks that were given during the winter retreat of 1988 here at Amravati. This is Chapter 18, uh, it's called Beyond Belief. From the appearance of the five khandhas, rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara, and vinyana, and the unquestioned belief that they are oneself, it always seems that the mind is in the body. If you say, where's your mind? Most people will point to their head or to their hearts. But if you investigate the way things are, following the teachings of the Buddha, you begin to realize that the body is in the mind. Mind is really what comes first. The body is just the receptor. It's a sensitive receptor, like a radio or a radar or something similar. It's not a person. It's not anything other than merely an instrument. So to uh, uh, this was a familiar theme that uh, Lumpur had in uh, those days, and uh, it was the case then, it's the case now. So we can say we... Uh, we At a convention we say our our mind is in our body and we, as he says, we tend to point to our head or our heart. But right now, everything that you know about your body and about the temple and this moment, it's happening in the mind, isn't it? How we see, we hear, we smell, we taste, we touch, we think, we remember. And we put that all together and we say, here I am. (laughs) I I am in the temple. Uh, uh, We uh, look at uh, the body but that's seeing. Seeing is visual consciousness. Uh, it's happening in the, the visual cortex of the brain. It's a, a mental representation of, uh, of the body. So everything that we've ever known about our body, our life, the world, has all happened, even before we were, since before we were born, it's all happened through the agency of this mind. This is the only world we have ever known, is the world as represented by our minds. So uh, this is literally as Lumpur would say in other places this is literally a mind-blowing teaching <laughs> and uh, people can mi- uh, sort of misinterpret it and as, or, or think that it's saying oh well does this mean that you know, it's this is all just a dream it's uh, uh, it's completely sort of uh, uh, empty and illusory but uh, it's uh, that's not something that you find the buddha saying at least not in the pali canon that um, that uh, the, uh, uh, life, is, uh, life is but a dream, but rather uh, say what we know of the world. And I think I was quoting this uh, yesterday or the day before, that uh, the Buddha said, what is the world? Uh, the, uh, that whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world, that is what we call the world in this Dhamma and discipline. Uh, Lokamani is a conceiver of the world, Lokasanyi is a perceiver of the world, and so that it's through the the mind and its senses that's uh, where uh, the uh, the means whereby the world is known. So he says that's what we call the world. So the world. Is the world of our own experience, uh, and so when we call ourselves sane or <laughs> or uh, functional as human beings, then uh, our system, these um, these receptors, the, this this life of ours, this this body and mind, are able to put those perceptions together and to remember our name, or to remember uh, where our, our room is, or where we left our shoes, and to, uh, we uh, can hold all those various different. Uh, conditions in a uh, in a well integrated order and we call ourselves functional or sane or, or uh, competent human beings and when things uh, when the wiring doesn't work when that that um uh, the receptor is is faulty or when uh, when we're ill or or um exhausted uh, uh, or having uh, an injury or something then the 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 mind the system doesn't put things together in a coherent or, or well integrated way so we say that we're we're sleepy or we're deluded or we're hallucinating or or um, we are uh, say not able to to perceive or to know the, the world in a in a reliable way um, so I think that just uh, this opening paragraph here of this teaching is um, is very, very significant. It also harks back to um, the dialogue uh, that I was also quoting um, just uh, recently uh, of the Buddha with the Devata Rohitasa, where the Buddha says, it's within this very body with its perceptions and thoughts. There is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. So that uh, Lumpur Sumedha saying, is you saying, know, the, the world is in the mind, uh, the, the body is in the mind, is, is really echoing. It's, it's a, 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 another way of expressing that same insight that the Buddha communicated to Rohitasa. When that view of being within the five khandas is seen through and let go of, there's a realization of, of what we can call deathlessness, immortality. These words imply beyond the conditioned, quote-unquote, and the ability to conceive the deathless is impossible. You can point at a word like deathless, immortal, or unconditioned. But beyond that, there's no more you can say about it, because words themselves are conditioned and mortal. Words, concepts, perceptions, conceptions are only appropriate to the conditioned world. As long as you're attached to thoughts and concepts, to views and opinions, no matter how intelligent and altruistic those views might be, that very attachment will bind you to the conditioned realm. You'll keep being reborn into it. You'll keep searching for the unconditioned in the conditioned, looking for God in the mortal condition, in the changing nature of sensory consciousness, only to feel totally frustrated and disappointed then you have to support that soul view, quote-unquote, by a kind of stubborn belief. So to uh, unpack that a little bit, to explore that, and this is something that, um, uh, again, is, is a frequent theme of Lumpur's, uh, even today, saying how the the, the Dhamma is unimaginable, or the, the unconditioned is unimaginable. You can't create an image for the unconditioned, for you know the Dhamma, which is, which is timeless, akaliko. That uh, we use words like uh, apparent here and now, uh, sanditiko, uh, akaliko, timeless, ehipasiko, encouraging investigation. These kind of terms we use to describe uh, the qualities of the Dhamma. But the word akaliko it occurs in time. <laughs> you know, it's like it takes time to say the word. The word "akaliko" is not timeless. It's a it's a, a word, a concept that points to that that quality of timelessness. But because our senses, as uh, Lompoy is saying here, you know, the the words, the concepts, the perceptions, they are time bound. They're they're aspects of the conditioned world. You know, I'm sitting here. You are all sitting there. You know, I'm using words. Time is passing. It's 10 minutes and 42 43 seconds past 6 in the evening <laughs> uh, so that I, I, according to the conditioned habits of the senses you know i'm here you're there there's there's time passing there's space there's uh, individuality and those are, are the uh, uh, apparent uh say the apparent forms that uh, that uh, we uh, the we are say Limited to using those forms to to be pointing to that which is formless, the, the deathless, the unborn, the unconditioned, the uncreated. We use those forms to point to that which is beyond form. We use conditions to point to that which is which is unconditioned. So again, this can be a bit mind blowing or a bit confusing, <laughs> because it, uh, the 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 habit is to try and describe everything or have things understood in terms of of concepts Uh, but it's really only through uh, not trying to pin down reality in terms of time and space and and concepts and individuality then that realization can be uh, actualized, the the dhamma can can be actualized, can be embodied. As Lumpur Chow used to use this kind of puzzles of saying, if you can't go forward, you can't go backwards, you can't stand still, where do you go? And uh, it's deliberately frustrating to the to the mind that says, well, you've either got to go forwards or backwards or sideways, or <laughs> uh, but you can't go forward, you can't go back, you can't stand still. There's no answer to that in terms of three-dimensional space and, and time and, and individuality. It's only when the mind lets go of that identification. And uh, and uh, and awakens to the, the present reality. The, the awakens to, to dhamma. Then in that in that realization, it's seen that time is a construct, space is a construct, uh, individuality is a is a construct. These are uh, perceptions formed. And when the mind stops believing in them and taking them to be to be real and solid, then the you know, the, the timeless, unlocated. Uh, dhamma can be can be realized so uh, again it's hard to talk about (laughs) because speech is is confined to uh, say it has to to um, say uh, borrow its substance from the the sensory world but um, and this is one of the the challenges of teaching dhamma or reflecting on dhamma we have to use uh, conditions to help the mind to awaken to the unconditioned we have to use forms to help the mind awaken and to realize the the formless but it can be done and this is the uh, the the point of these particular teachings Uh, and when we talk about timelessness timelessness is not just like a when we say the dhamma is timeless it's not just a a very short period of time (laughs) it's like like time doesn't apply you could say like a a millionth of a second is a really short amount of time but if you compare a millionth of a second to a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second, then one millionth of a second is really long. It's, uh, what would it be, about 20 orders of magnitude longer. <laughs> it's, a, it's a billion, a uh, billion and uh, a thousand times uh, longer. So is a millionth of a second a short time or a long time? so uh, not to make it too confusing but uh, when we we talk about akaliko it's letting go of time altogether uh, when we, we uh, speak about uh, the the dhamma then it's really helpful in this respect to say, to recognize words don't apply <laughs> it's not it's not a word it's not a concept it's a, a direct realization a, a wordless non-conceptual non-personal Realisation, And uh, so that if we, we kind of frame it in that way, then it helps the mind to stop looking for the perfect concept or the perfect image or the perfect thing to um, to, to use. As uh, Lumpur is saying here, you're know, looking for God in the mortal condition. Um, in the changing of sensory consciousness, only to feel totally frustrated and disappointed. So, if you're trying to describe dhamma, you know what the dhamma is, in terms of a sensory experience, it's going to be disappointing or frustrating. And uh, uh, the um, one of the things that uh, when I had a, a dialogue at the Buddhist Society with a few other Buddhist teachers and uh, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Dr. Rowan Williams, one of the, the notable things. But he said, in terms of Christian theology, uh, he said, if you're thinking of God as, a, as a, a thing in a universe of other things, you're completely missing the reality. So I thought, well, so that's a very Buddhist statement. <laughs> if you're looking for God as a thing in a universe of other things, then you're completely missing the reality. So any questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes, Gaspar.
1: Yes maybe just a short uh, reflection, so it does feel um, as if the closest sort of uh, the mode of being mode of being closest to the truth is silence um, as as uh, you were mentioning the mind and, and and the body in the mind. I was um, actually thinking how even conceptualizing things as being in the mind is. Uh, somewhat an error in thinking because it presumes that the mind is a thing in which to contain things and so i understand this is sort of <laughs> like a pointer to the mind or to understanding the mind but even even thinking in terms of uh, those mental models is kind of like a subtle trap now uh, which i think uh, sort of invites us to transcend that so that's my comment thank you
0: thank you yeah it's a uh... In a way, it's uh, recognizing that sabbe, sankara dukha. Every conditioned thing is necessarily unsatisfactory. So, even using a word like space or silence or stillness, they are there. There can only be partial truths there. And I think if you recognize th- this, can only point to the reality. It can only be a skillful means that helps the. The, the heart to to know that that fundamental reality, then you, the, the limitations of that are are sort of clear if you think no that there must be a perfect word, there must be a perfect uh, equation or a a, a, a a phrase that can really guarantee to, to catch it to, to represent it perfectly. but if you just take that simple statement of the Buddha, sabbe sankara dukkha all conditioned things are unsatisfactory if it's formed it cannot satisfy it can't do that and so whether it's a a word or a concept a color a shape a number a, a a sound it in itself cannot be something that absolutely satisfies that represents that reality perfectly and uh, similarly, with um, Lompochas, a, a very direct and uh, simple encouragement to reflect on uncertainty, and using the, um, say, wise reflection to, to explore every time the, make, the mind makes a judgment. It says, "Oh, now I've got it!" Or this is the this is the right answer, or this is what we should do. This is the um, this is the truth then to simply bring the to reflect on that by asking is that so is that a sure thing uh, and that if that questioning that investigation that challenging is is brought about with with wisdom with mindfulness and wisdom then it, it it opens the heart up to that recognition oh this can only be a a convenient fiction it can only be a partial truth it, it can't be uh, it can't represent this perfectly it's necessarily an incomplete picture yeah it's either incomplete or imperfect it, it can't be otherwise aha and the aha is the point of that reflection it's not to replace your imperfect image or idea with a, a more polished or complete one <laughs> because no matter how polished or complete you, you know it can't be done and so it's that Aha, there's a relaxation, and opening of the heart. The heart opens to the present reality. And in that moment, there's no dukkha. So the, the point of any kind of concept or words or Dhamma teaching, the point is, as the Buddha said, I teach one thing, dukkha and the ending of dukkha. And so that uh, the, the point of applying those kind of skillful means of a concept, talking about space or silence or stillness, even talking about realization you know or the unconditioned or timelessness the uh, the the point of it is ending suffering, and so that uh, the uh, if it's really clear in the mind that okay, any word, any concept, any form can only point to the reality, it can only be a skillful means it, it can't actually embody. That 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 dhamma, uh, that reality, then then it's things are seen in their true light. You're not asking for more from a concept than it can possibly provide, or a word, or um, and uh, you know, so space, silence, stillness, they are uh, they're kind of um, aspects of the natural order that say bear, uh, point in a, a, a helpful direction well like, like using the inner sound listening to the nada sound as a meditation object you know that isn't the realization of dhamma itself but like the 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 non-personal quality of it the continuity of it the ever-present quality of it um the the inability to be a controller or commander of it those are all aspects of the inner sound and inner listening that sort of uh, uh, are helpful symbols or pointers towards dhamma, but just hearing the sound is just a sound. <laughs> it's just auditory consciousness. It, it, it isn't really more than that, but its qualities uh, are indicative, or they they, they, um, uh, say they resemble or point to the fundamental qualities of of, of dhamma in its in its reality. Okay, so to continue. Beliefs don't change. <laughs> well, yeah, everything changes. but uh, <laughs> When Lumpur says beliefs don't change, uh, well, he'll explain a bit, but uh, it means that we, we keep believing the same things over and over again. <laughs> beliefs don't change. When you're 50, you can believe in exactly the same things you believed in when you were 5. That belief is the grasping of a perception. Some beliefs are very nice and pretty and sentimental. The romantic and sentimental view of life presents a pretty picture that we can still believe in, even when we're 80. When my gran died at 75, she still had a 16-year-old girl's emotional development. When she... When she died, she had a boyfriend called Hercules Cavalier. This is a true story. Uh, Lampausometa's grandmother had a boyfriend called Hercules Cavalier, who was her gigolo. She still had the same kind of romantic longings as when she was a sixteen-year-old girl. Even though at seventy-five she was a physical wreck, her mind was still attached to those pretty pictures of youth. We assume and believe and never question the prejudice and fixed views we're grasping, that we never change. They don't change. We keep reaffirming the same old things over and over again. That's why so many political problems arise. It's because so many people hold on to political views rather than trying to be aware of the needs of a particular time and place. How much violence, meanness and nastiness are done in the name of property alone. And boundaries. This is my land. Get off my land. You see it all the time in countries' endless border problems. And the meanness of heart. Not wanting to let people in or let them out. Because of the unquestioned belief, this is my house, my family, my wife, my husband, my children, my, my, my. Over the course of many years of meditation, I can see that a lot of attachments, obsessions and tendencies have fallen away because of allowing things to cease. The process has been one of letting things go rather than believing, grasping and becoming reborn in endless thought patterns and desires. When we view life as just a passage, we're not going to hang on to it. We're not going to become mean and selfish because we realize that nothing is worth holding on to. Not material wealth, property, status, worldly values, or anything else. Nothing is worth bothering with that much, because it's not really ours anyway. Of course, we can believe that it's ours, but in actual investigation, in looking into the way the mind actually is, we can see that nothing really belongs to us anyway, and there's nobody to own anything. With the reflection that the body is in the mind, this grasping changes. You have to start contemplating, what is mind then? Because your body is certainly not in your brain, nor is your blood-pumping heart there in your body. So there's a, a few things there. Occasionally Lumpur would mention his grandmother's boyfriend, Hercules Cavalier. <laughs> it's an interesting name to uh, to <laughs> to have. Apparently it's totally genuine. Um, but yeah, his, his grandmother was... Um, very uh, caught up in this of worldly, worldly values. And uh, th- this is a, a theme that I find myself talking about uh, very, very often, uh, say, when talking with the people on retreats or in Sangha members or, or in different um, different Buddhist groups uh, around uh, the, this country, around the world, and that particularly this sense of, of how we keep reaffirming the same judgments how we see ourselves in the same way, uh, and as uh, as Lung po began this part, you know, beliefs don't change. Well, they do change if we let them, but we keep recreating the same patterns. We we tell ourselves these stories. You know, I'm like this, or I'm I'm no good at that, or I'm uh, I'm this kind of a person, or you know, uh, i uh, I can never uh, I never get over my uh, my obsession with. Um, this sort of resentful feeling towards my family or I, this, uh, this um, um, broken heart that I had or the fact that I, got, I failed my university degree or, or um, I uh, caused a terrible uh, uh, accident when I was a, a teenager and uh, I can never be forgiven for causing that kind of harm. Um, that we um, have different events or different character traits, different... Um, say patterns of uh, of experience are not just painful things it can be like yes i'm I'm a really special person here yeah, i uh, you yeah, know I know that I'm actually far more spiritual than most of the other people here I mean they, they mean well they're good people but really you know they're just sort of filling space here and it's it's really for only kind of one or two of us that are really you know have really got it that's what this this place is really for you know i mean it's, I don't look down on those those people but uh, <laughs> You know they they do their best, but really they haven't quite got it like like me. You know, they're not special like I am. I'm just kinda of making I'm not reading anybody's mind, but just making these things up. So it can be you know that we the feelings of inflation or or privilege, entitlement, or self-criticism, or regret and so on, it can be all kinds of different things. But we tell ourselves the same stories over and over and over again. And, and oftentimes we don't realize that we're just building a prison for ourselves and then you know, locking the door and throwing the key out uh, outside. And that over and over again, I don't know how many times over the years, I've been I offered the reflection that, you know, the, the world is a lot more spacious than the, than you're making it. There's a lot more possibility. You don't have to see yourself in that way. You don't have to keep telling yourself that same story. You can change the story. As um, uh, the uh, in the Western psychological field, uh, it's, uh, a fellow called Claude Steiner, I think it was, wrote a book called uh, uh, Scripts People Live. Um, I studied when I was a university student and how you know, we write these scripts for ourselves or people hand us a script and then we just feel that we've got to follow it but uh one of the things that uh, i found very inspiring and helpful um in that particular um studying that particular book was uh that you can you can tear up your script you can or you can flip out of your script you don't have to it's because you've got a, a particular script a sense of a, a plan for your life or a way that you talk about yourself who says that it's true? Who says you have to be that way? Who says you have to make that the defining judgment? Just because you made a stupid mistake when you were seventeen, or just because you you won a big prize uh, when when you were um, a, a student, or or um, somebody uh, say was a, a very affirmative of your particular qualities and said, you know, you're a wonderful special person. Why do we make that what we are? Why do we make uh, that the way we define ourselves or that we judge other people? You know, this person is good, that person is bad. That uh, we we kind of create these patterns and then lock ourselves into them. And that uh, over and over again, if we uh, bring attention to that and say, well, who says that's true? You know, or like, uh, again, using Lumpur Chow's uh, reflection: Is that so? Is that a sure thing? You know, I'm a useful. I'm a useless person. Uh, I, I'm a real. I'm a failure as a monk. Is that so? Yeah, you know, I'm really the 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 uh, the, the shining light of the sangha. You know, I'm really the most wise and accomplished person here. Is that so? <laughs> I'm totally average. I'm completely unremarkable. Yeah, you know, I'm not. Uh, uh, I'm I'm the most non awful, non special person. I'm the utterly average person. Is that so? You know, the the way the mind creates these limitations and then believes in them it, it's it's tragic it's all sort of tragicomic you know if it wasn't so um painful it would be hilarious that we we kind of build these prisons lock ourselves in them and throw away the key it's like why do we do that yeah you know, there's a lot more possibility a lot more flexibility uh, in the universe than, than we we realize and and over and over again people say there's no alternative there's no way forward this is this is all i can do i am this way I, there's there's no other options for me and uh, uh just to take a step back and to reflect upon that and to ask well why do i believe that or who says that's true or is that a fact um, and interestingly if we really are practicing and looking at the 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 mind and the 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 um the constructed compounded uh, formed and conditioned nature of thinking then just a little step back and say and asking say uh, is that really true or why do I believe that or is that the fact uh, why do I think that's uh, the reality of things why do I think that's the only possibility uh, just a small amount of reflection can you know open up that the field uh, in a in a remarkable way it's like wow because if the the that quality of intuitive wisdom is being accessed and and used then there's that that recognition that, that the the wisdom of the heart that says yeah why do i believe that's true you know <laughs> i keep telling myself that story but who, who says it has to be that way why why do i just go along with that and that we can uh, with rather than just having another idea about what we want to be we can simply recognize there is more space in the system there's more flexibility there's more opportunity uh, that that is there where we're not stuck we're not we're not prisoners we're not victims uh, of this conditioning it might be a very strong habit it might be very convincing but if we pay attention use mindfulness and wisdom to watch those those uh, habit habitual judgments and habits of thinking then just steadily reminding (laughs) ourselves that there's more space, there's more flexibility, that that we're not prisoners, we're not victims. Uh, Then there's a a, a lot more, a a lot more joy. There's a a, a quality of spaciousness. And uh, we find that we don't have to be stuck in those, those uh, old ruts, those, those old habits. We, uh, we're not uh, confined to that. We, we don't have to see ourselves in that way. And that uh, even if we've been sort of rigidly stuck on a particular perception for 40, 50, 60, 70, 75 years, <laughs> like uh, Lumpur's grandmother, um, you know, we we can change, we can let go of that. I remember um, when my, my father turned uh, 80, he was... Um, and uh, he was a uh, he was a, a a big figure in the the dog show uh, in uh, dog breeding. He was a, uh, a um, an expert in bull terriers. He's like the, one of the world's leading um, bull terrier experts. Also, could judge many dogs. His the, the the crowning pinnacle of his life was judging best in show at Crufts, which is a kind of arahantship in the dog breeding world. It's The kind of the 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 uh, the pinnacle which you cannot pass beyond is being the, the judge of best in show at Crafts, So anyway, in his own world he was a very big figure and he was quite happy to be a big figure and an important person in the dog breeding world and he had a, a column, a page that he had in a dog magazine he wrote for many, many years. In dog world, if you're interested. <laughs> so anyway, when he, he reached 80 and I was visiting the family one time, he made the comment, uh, I'm a big fish but it's a very small pond. I thought, Wow impressive dad <laughs> and he, he really yeah, it was really just a a comment right from the heart i felt it was just you know his life was uh, was winding down many uh, many uh, of his friends were, were sort of dropping dead around him and that kind of an age um where the heavenly messengers were very very apparent and it was bringing this more of a reflective attitude so i was really impressed that uh yeah yeah he really had been a big figure and important and was invited to travel all around the world and judge dog shows and and so on and so forth and was a highly respected figure but to be able to see yeah I'm a big fish but it's a it's a very small pond and that uh that sense of stepping back and looking at uh at the whole picture from a, a different perspective like why was that so important why was I so <laughs> f- uh, filled up with with uh or that value system, why did I think that was so significant? And and also a sense of relief in that. A sense of, ah, don't have to carry that around or don't have to, to, to be that uh, for for other people. So in, in these comments that, that Lumpur makes here, um, that uh, uh, also yeah, nothing is worth holding on to. The Pali for that is, sabhe dhamma nalang abhini vaisaya nothing is worth holding on to that these are are really um uh, it's a really valuable teaching and and again we can hold on to not just our achievements and our wholesome qualities things that we're proud of but more often we hold on to the things that we're regretting or about ourselves or we hold on to our criticisms of other people or our obsessions about other people but nothing uh, nothing whatsoever is worth holding on to um, yeah, and as he says, the, um, that, the, um, that, uh, that nothing belongs to us anyway, and there's nobody to own anything. Yeah, so no thing can be owned, and there's no, there's no person to do any owning. <laughs> there's, there's no thing that can be owned, and no, no thing here that can do any owning. So why do we hang on? Or what's, what's the point of trying to hang on and to identify in terms of uh, of inflation, in, inflatedness maybe is a better word. Um, one of the the teachings that the Buddha gives uh, in the Sangyuta Nikaya, the connected discourses, there's a section of it called the Laba Sangyuta, which Laba means gains or, or things that you get. Uh, it's about owning, and. Uh, he uh, he says uh, some, a a samana or a brahmin a, uh, like a a monastic who is very proud of their accomplishments they're proud of uh, their their knowledge of the scriptures or their ability to recite the teachings or to be a a, a an eloquent dharma teacher or they've got you know hundreds or thousands of disciples that uh, he says you know, a samana or a brahmin who is proud of their gains or how much money they get given in terms of offerings, or how big their temple is, you know, how, how high their stupor is, or how, their temple, or whatever. He said, it's like a, a dung beetle. Uh, and in, in, uh, in Asia, comparing a spiritual person to a dung beetle, it's, it's a kind of pretty, uh, pretty raw, <laughs> deliberately insulting kind of comparison. Like, to talk about a, a, you know, a holy person, and uh, compare them to a dung beetle. It's like, a, But the Buddha does, he's obviously making a strong point. He said, a summoner or a Brahmin who's proud of their accomplishments or their, their wealth and their offerings that they get, the, the gains that they have, it's like a dung beetle that's proud of its ball of dung saying, I've got the biggest ball of dung in the, in the, in the whole forest. No dung beetle's got a bigger ball of dung than I have. I've got the best dung ball, It's far more impressive and, and wonderful than, than any, other, any other dung beetle around here. So it's one of those instances where the Buddha is kind of using humor, but also in you know, a quite a pointed way. He gets people's attention, comparing you know, the spiritual teachers to to dung beetles, and how ridiculous you know, like saying how big your temple is, or how many disciples you've got, or how much money you get. You've been given. It's like a dung beetle being proud of its its dung ball. That it's it's uh, really nothing to be proud of. You know, it's being inflated about. Uh, you know, ridiculous worldly things. So, any questions, thoughts, reflections? Anybody still thinking like a sixteen-year-old? <laughs> Not uncommon for us, I think. One of one of the the um, for many years, the most popular uh when we had cassettes back in the days of cassettes before there was websites in the the abayagiri monastery tape library the most popular cassette that people like to borrow and ask for copies of was um a, a dhamma talk that lumpur samedo gave in, in the states called uh emotionally stuck at the age of 15. so that was a really popular talk <laughs> i want to hear that one yeah. so uh so anyway any any questions thoughts Yes Anagarika, car Well we we don't become what we think <laughs> we we keep making us we, we keep attaching to the things that we think we are and keep being keep bringing it to life because of those habits of attachment but it it's it, it's something that we have to hold together we, we we're like we, we create a self image and then we keep we keep reinforcing it even if it's a painful self image um we keep uh, it, it will naturally decay on its own, but we keep recreating it uh, because it's the as I say it's the devil that we know. You know that expression, the, the devil that you know. You keep so even if it's a painful identity like I'm useless, I'm no good. That's what we're used to calling ourselves. It's the devil we know, so we keep. And something comes along and says, "Yeah, actually, you're fine." Like, <laughs> <laughs> but we can be disturbed by something uh, interrupting our self-image, and that we we will push that away to to keep our own favoured self-image alive, just because of the sense of being that it gives us. Anyway, so please, if you can hold the microphone a bit closer. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, It's a that. um, It it's a a, an echoing, a reiteration of that same, that teaching that because because of ignorance, then the 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 body and mind seem to be uh, a, a sort of. Substantial presence of the subject and the object the, um, And that they, they're given that kind of solidity On account of, of ignorance, not seeing clearly And that the, with ignorance, when the mind doesn't see clearly Then it, it keeps following those same patterns It keeps repeating those patterns And when there's vija, when there's awareness Then it, it takes away that apparent solidity yeah. and they're, they're recognised as oh, the, uh, in they're they're seen in their true light. That you know this sense of subject and object. This is this is only a partial truth. is only an, a, a seeming, an appearance of things. That uh, there isn't really a, a solid me here, the subject that knows a, a world out there. Uh, in in terms of the object, that's just the the, the apparent. Uh, the arrangement, and that the the more there is uh, there's wisdom and that quality of awareness, then that division into subject object me here the world out there that's seen as just a a, a, a conventional truth or a, a relative truth. It's not anything absolute. Okay, so continue. This evening I was standing outside and looking at the dusk and the trees, the barren trees on the borders of Amaravati, just contemplating that the trees are in the mind and that trees are conscious. There's a certain level of consciousness in all life in the fact that there is receptivity to the environment and the trees are very receptive to the environment that they are in. This leads to beginning to change the perception of mind to that of a consciousness that pervades everything. Then it's not just a human mind. There's something more to it. But in Buddhism, it's never named. You never try to form a concept about it. Instead, you contemplate the totality, the whole of sensitivity, the sensory realm and what it's really about. And we have to contemplate this from our own ability to be conscious and to feel, but not to see it in terms of me and mine. I feel these things and nobody else does, or only human beings do and animals don't, or only mammals do and reptiles don't, or only the animal and insect kingdoms do, but not plants. Consciousness does not imply thought, but it does imply receptivity to what is impinging, to what comes to it. We begin to see that consciousness is a vital, changing, universal system. It's like a plenum. It's full with all possibilities, all potentials of form, of what can be created. We can see whatever we can think in terms of the human ability to imagine, through which we can create all kinds of fantasies that come into material form. But the greatest, most profound and meaningful human potential is overlooked by most people. This is the ability to understand the truth of the way it is, to see the Dhamma, to be free from all delusions. So in Lumpur, talking in this way, this is a sort reflective teaching, and um, so that, uh, again, that uh, it's important to... Uh, to, to consider that well, this is one way of talking about his experience and reflecting on the the, the living system of uh, the the land and the, and the trees and the beings, and um, and uh, so that uh, it's a, a an insight or or a, an observation that, that came to his mind at that time, and that feeling of uh, of say how any uh, aspect of the living system, the the ecosphere is sensitive, is uh, perceiving, is relating to its environment in various ways. And so uh, the, uh, I would encourage not a sense of, of uh, you know, well, are the trees thinking? Or are they communicating with us? Or how can I communicate with the trees? or To, uh, to not create too much conceptual proliferation around these kind of um, statements. But to to get a uh, to uh, to have a quality of openness, so to get a sense of where Lumpur is coming from, in uh, in speaking about that um, that sense of how uh, the the living system is sensitive and open and connected to its environment. This word plenum is a Latin word. It means uh, full or, or what is fullness. And it's a, it really, I, I would say, it's a uh, it's a, a a good translation for dhamma that it's a uh, uh, in terms of of the way that it, it's used both so in uh, the so classical philosophy, um, but also interestingly enough used by uh, by some physicists nowadays. David Bohm used exactly the same word, who's literally wrote the book on quantum mechanics. Um, Quantum theory. David Bohm, a very highly respected physicist, um, who made the the observation that this the plenum in terms of the the, uh, um, the fundamental nature of of reality. He called it the the ground of existence for everything, including ourselves, which I thought was a really good description uh, of dhamma. Uh, so uh, again, the um, the kind of uh, approach that Lumpur is talking about here, in a sense of of uh, being out in the dusk, uh, observing the the trees and uh, and such like, there's a a, a wordless quality of openness, uh, attunement to the the, the present experience, and that uh, the sense of how things um, say fit together. And he said, uh, <clears throat> "You never try to form a concept about it. Instead, you contemplate the totality." the whole of sensitivity, the sensory realm, and what it's really about. And to contemplate, the again, going back, there's a lot of Latin in these readings, so contemplate the the, the word templum uh, is related to our English word temple. So a templum in Latin is an area that's marked out in order to, um, say, uh, to to <laughs> contemplate <laughs> to be aware of the different conditions that are contributing to the present experience so a um an astrologer or a um what they call a soothsayer um some kind of uh, um, uh, spiritual um, uh, say guide would set out a, a templum, like a mark an area of the ground or, the, or of the sky. And what is the origin of the uh, what we call a, a temple as a building? It's like a sacred space. And then they would watch what occurred, what came into that space, uh, what appeared within the templum in terms of animals or birds or, or events that happened. And then they would make a, a reading or, have a, or, or use that as a kind of divinatory process or a sense of what does this say about the present condition and and where things are going so like a a a reading of an astrologer or reading tarot cards or reading um the i ching and and such like it was that kind of a a reading so that the templum is a sacred space that you watch within so to contemplate and then the con uh, of contemplate means means with or together uh, together with uh, and connected to uh, to something so to contemplate is like to be within the space of the temple so we talk about contemplation then the the mind is the uh, the templum and the attention is being brought within that to see what uh, say arises and takes shape and and forms within that templum. so it's a Uh, It's an intuitive uh, awareness. It's not about, again, creating a concept or an idea or or calculating anything, but rather it's a a quality of attunement. In a sense, uh, attuning the heart to the the present experience and opening up that sense of uh, of awareness uh, to to draw upon that intuitive wisdom to get a... uh, a say, say a feeling or a um, a reading a sense of, of direction or what are the what are the elements uh, that are playing into the particular patterns of this present experience what's what's happening here how does it work how does it fit together so when we talk about contemplating something contemplating the body or contemplating birth and death contemplating dependent origination such like you're taking those uh, those, uh, those those experiences, those patterns, those qualities deliberately into the the space of the heart, and then uh, again, rather than trying to figure things out conceptually or to um, create a particular ideas about that, there's a, a an openness, an attunement of the heart to what the patterns uh, of experience are, how they relate to each other, and then also intuiting the uh, the the meaning or the value uh, of what's being experienced and what uh, it uh, what comes forth from that what arises in terms of a skillful way of relating to that or how to work with this particular pattern does it say go forward does it say be still does it say this is confusing or does it say um speak up or does it, does it say be quiet and so uh, that's uh, a con- the contemplative process is one of awakening and and attunement, uh, and rather than sort of calculating or, or, or say using conceptual thought to 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 name everything or to figure everything out. So hopefully that um, is uh, something that people get have a sense for or can appreciate um, what uh, uh, how that works or what that what that means but uh, please if you have any questions thoughts anything anything that i just said is unclear or confusing please ask away does that make sense what i was just saying about contemplation actually there's a in uh, the collected teachings of ajahn chah uh, there's one one section of it is where he talks uh, which is called what is contemplation and uh Lumpur Lumpur Cha makes it very clear then when we talk about contemplation it's not necessarily using conceptual thought at all in its essence contemplation isn't a a conceptual activity it's a a, a non-verbal, non-conceptual investigation and uh, realisation Gaspar, yes Once again.
1: Yes, so uh, as far as I'm aware, in certain Christian uh, mystic tradition, um, and I may be mistaken, but that was my my understanding, that meditation was uh, conflated with contemplation. So... um, I guess the, the what what we considered to be as a uh, meditative process, I think in in some Christian mystical tradition, it was called a contemplation, and then meditation had a a, a different connotation. I think so. Um, it's when I think about it, it's sort of difficult to draw the line where does meditation begin. Uh, or stop, and where does contemplation begin or stop? So maybe some reflections on this. Thank you.
0: Well it depends how you use the words. Um, I, I think uh, I've heard exactly the same kind of description that you've uh, that you've given that um, um, and the, the the different kinds of of contemplation or different kinds of prayer. Uh, and, and I think it's probably different between the the Eastern Orthodox Church and uh, and Western, so Catholicism and and uh, Anglican Christianity. So that the I, I'm certainly not nothing like an expert in those areas, um, but uh, yeah, I, I know that the um, when they talk about contemplative prayer, then some of those aspects of contemplation use language, and some of them are, are also deliberately not using language. It's like a prayer without language. And that it's a, um, uh, and there, there are different forms of practice that are used in, in different areas. And so some kinds of meditation or contemplation use a kind of mantra, uh, repetition of a particular phrase, uh some are, you know, you take, you, you literally read a passage out of the the Bible or a scripture and and uh, that paragraph or those sentences are very consciously sort of brought into mind and that's, that's sort of part of the, the contemplation. But uh, again, I, I'm not knowledgeable enough about the different usages, but I think some will use the word meditation for the... Uh, the the verbal aspect Uh, some will use contemplation and the different exercises they're they're labeled in in different ways but uh, it uh, it is interesting to me that um that in many of the christian traditions that they they do include that uh, a wordless or like a prayer prayer without language or they call perfect prayer which is a a um uh say Approaching or related to that and sort of non conceptual quality that I'm talking about just like the the sense of the mind being awake you know, and the heart you know open and attuned to the present reality, and that uh, that is taken to be a more sort of refined or or um uh, a small sort of liberating or superior kind of prayer than the the prayer of repeating words, or prayer of appeal, asking for you know, praying for certain things to happen, and or praying for assistance from divine entities of one kind or another. Oh, so, but but I, I'm not a, anything like an expert or that familiar to be able to pin it down. But uh, I know that uh, probably more in the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Philokalia, um, which is a quite a comprehensive manual of, of um, spiritual teachings. I think there's more uh, a detail, more variety contained in that than you find in the Western uh, Europe, Western European Christianity in the sort of Catholic and Anglican churches. Well, I see seven o'clock has come around once again, so uh, let's leave it there for uh, for today.